morning, guys. A couple announcements real quick before we get into the Word. Um, first, you guys might not be aware of this because you're second service, but um, in between first and second service, there is, um, we've been doing like a little light breakfast or donuts or something and kind of just creating a, um, a time people can fellowship, especially since we're kind of split across services, a time you can kind of overlap. So if you guys want to come early, feel free to do that, hang out, get a little bite, see your, uh, see your first service homies that you haven't seen in a while. Second, um, this Wednesday at 10 a.m. is the uh, Ladies Fellowship. So if you want more information on that, um, you can call the church office. Neither my wife nor Jen are here today, so you can't ask them. But um, Jen's off seeing her, uh, her grandchild in Arizona, and um, my wife's just home. Uh, she's actually getting ready to go out of town, so she's, she's, uh, some of her friends are coming up, so they're getting a little, little ladies get-together. I didn't want you to think that she was just skipping church for no reason. It's not a good look. Um, and then, uh, how do I get myself into these things? Jeez. Um, Wednesday night, uh, the third installment of the Truth Project. Encourage you guys to make it out for that. There's workbooks available if you uh, want to grab one of the workbooks. And then next Sunday after church is the, uh, is the bridge, the junior high fellowship. They're having a little, um, get together after church, some food and some games and activities. So, um. If you have uh, a child in that age range, just, just leave them behind next Sunday. I think that's it for announcements. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, and we, Lord, we just ask for your presence. We ask that you would meet us here this morning, Lord. As we open your word, we pray that you would speak to us. You reveal yourself and you would draw us close to you. We pray that in your name. In 1989, my freshman year in high school, I know some of you guys weren't even born then. You're like, man, how old are we? Some of you guys were. Anyway, 1989, high school English class, Ms. Eisenbeiser. We had this section on mythology. And I remember we were going through some of the different mythologies around the world. We spent some time on like, I like Norse mythology, and we had to read through Beowulf and all that. And then, ironically, there was a section in the Bible, in the mythology class, and we, and we looked at the flood and some of that stuff. But primarily, we focused on Greek and Roman mythology. And um, we looked at, you know, Zeus and Aphrodite and Hermes and Mars and Apollo and Neptune and, and all of these, these different characters, and we learned about the Titans, you know, those, the demigods, you know, Hercules and all those people, and Medusa and Tantalus and the River Styx, and, and it was all pretty enjoyable. I, I enjoyed the, that section. But I don't think that I really grasped at that time that this was actually, you know, this, was, this was their religion, right? The Greeks and the Romans in that day, they believed in that stuff in the same way that we believe in the scriptures today, right? This was, this was their faith system. They had, they had temples and shrines dedicated to these different gods. And, and the Greek and the Roman culture, they really embraced all these different deities. And anytime a, a new deity, a new god came along, they were cool with that. We're just going to put that on top of the pile too. Somebody from Africa or the Middle East or, or India shows up and they bring a new deity with them, right? We're just going to, we'll, we'll, we'll put that right on the pile. We're inclusive. We'll, we'll accept that. We'll worship that God too. In fact, one of the major problems that Rome had with the early Christians, it wasn't that they, that they worshiped God. The issue was Rome accused the early church of being atheists because they didn't believe in the whole pantheon of gods, right? They believed that there was but one God. And in the Roman mind, that was crazy that there was only one God. How could there only be one God? And so they viewed us as Christians as atheists. And this is the, this is the culture that, that Paul is moving in. It's a very polytheistic society. 
It's a society that, that loved their gods. They loved idols. They, they embraced everything, every philosophy, every idea, every religion, every god that, that anyone could conceive of was, was received with joy. Right? And earlier in Acts, you remember earlier in Acts chapter 17, Paul is chased out of Berea. And so he's sent ahead to Athens. And remember, he left a couple of his crew behind there to kind of help establish that church in Berea. And so while he's waiting there in Athens, he begins to preach the gospel. And that's where we pick up the text this morning. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. Now think about this. Paul, he grew up in Greek culture. right? He grew up surrounded by pagan worship. Right there in Tarsus, there would have been pagan temples. He would have been well acquainted with, with the idolatry of the Greek and Roman culture. But Athens apparently was so steeped in idolatry that even Paul who was used to it, was deeply troubled by what he saw there. Everywhere he turned. One source notes that, and this wasn't in Paul's time, but in about 300 B.C., a couple hundred years before this, there were between 100 to 150,000 people living in Athens. So it's a good-sized city. And it's noted that there were some 30,000 shrines in this city of 100 to 150,000 people. Everywhere you looked, every corner you went around, there was a shrine or a temple to some deity or another. And it says that it, it deeply troubled Paul. Now let me, let me lay something out here. And, and what I'm going to say initially, it's going to sound harsh when I first say it. It's going to sound hard. And so... As I say this, let me explain it. Let me, let me unpack this before you heap all of your condemnation on me, okay? Let me say this. I hate Islam. I hate Mormonism. I hate voodoo religions. I hate Buddhism. I hate the Hindu religion. And what do I mean when I say hate? I mean absolutely deplore. I desire the absolute destruction of Islam. I want to see Mormonism wiped off the face of the earth. And I realize when I say that on the surface, it sounds so judgmental, it sounds so abrasive, and it's so different with, than what society and culture is teaching us. And so I want to note what I didn't say. I did not say that I hate Muslims. I did not say that I hate Buddhists or Mormons. And I don't. Not, not at all. Generally speaking, I, it might surprise some of you, but I consider myself a people person. Right? I like people. I love people. I know Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Muslims. You know, and I have no problem with them. I, I count them as friends. What I hate is the false religious systems that lead people to destruction. Now, I hate cancer. Ooh, pastor said he hates people with cancer. That's not what I said at all, is it? I didn't say I hate people with cancer. I hate cancer because it kills people. That's what I'm saying about these false religious systems. I don't hate the adherence of those systems. I love them. In fact, that's precisely why I hate the system. Because I love the people that are trapped within the system. And I understand that those false religious systems will ultimately bring about the damnation of their souls. Right? How can a genuine, born-again believer not hate a religious system that leads people to eternal damnation. Right? If you believe the Bible, if you believe the plain, simple teaching of Scripture, you absolutely have to believe 
that these other systems of faith are leading to the damnation of men's souls. And as a lover of people, how can you not hate that? You know, I, I, hate, I hate AIDS. I hate cancer. I hate COVID. I hate all these things because they claim men's physical lives. How can I not infinitely more hate false religious systems that claim men's souls? Paul, here in Athens, he looks around and he sees all these shrines that are leading men into damnation. And he was deeply troubled. It hurt Paul to look around and see so many lost souls blindly stumbling towards hell and not even realizing it. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. As was Paul's practice, first he rolls into town and he heads to the synagogue. And he goes to the Jews and he begins to preach. And then daily he would go to the public square and teach. Now I don't know if you guys have traveled much, if you've been to, to Latin America. But in most Latin American cities, older cities, there's these areas right in the center of town called the Plaza de Armas. And, and they're really cool. A lot of times they're, they're tourist attractions. And it's like there's a big square, like a city block usually, and it's all, it's all tile, and there's a big fountain in the middle, and then all the, like, the government buildings and the old churches around it, and people kind of gather there. You know, people kind of hang out there, and there's food vendors. Oftentimes there's live music and, and people selling art, and it's really a natural place to, to go and share the gospel. And those are the kind of areas that Paul was attracted to. He would go into town, and he would look for those public areas, and he would begin preaching. And as soon as he starts, people start to gather around, and he would begin to explain the gospel message. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with them. And some said, what did this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus. And the resurrection. Athens was a big city. Athens was an important city. It was the center of philosophy. Right? A lot of great thinkers came from Athens. Plato and Socrates, they, they were from Athens. Right? These guys had taught there in previous centuries. There was a center of, of philosophy and thought. And so Paul begins to debate the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. And these are interesting groups. The Epicureans, they believed that pleasure was the greatest good. And so they, they strove to find new ways to enjoy life. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds a little bit like our culture, doesn't it? And then the Stoics. They were all about discipline and self-control and adhering to good morals, overcoming difficulty without expressing emotion, right? Any of you guys who are Star Trek fans, you, you can't help but think of Spock here, right? right? Spock was half Vulcan and half human, and he always suppressed that, that human side, that emotional side, and he, and he appealed to logic. That's kind of what the Stoics were all about, right? They... They, they appealed to logic. They tried to suppress emotion. And so Paul is, is debating these, these two groups. One who believes that, that pleasure is king. And the other group that believes self-control is what matters. And these are very opposite philosophies, aren't they? And neither group tended to like Paul very much. They said, what is this babbler talking about? That word babbler in the Greek, it means literally a seed picker. What would happen is, is oftentimes in the market, farmers would bring their seeds to sell. And some of them would fall on the floor and poor people would come and they would scoop up all the seeds. And they'd take them to their field and they would plant them. Right? And, and all kinds of different grain and different crops would come up. But it wasn't a unified thing. There wasn't any, any cohesion in their in their crops. 
And so that's kind of what this term meant. It, would ta- it was sort of an expression referring to someone who was, who was talking about concepts and ideas that they didn't fully understand. It was talking about people who didn't have a, a cohesive philosophy. They had a little bit of this and a little bit of that and kind of jumbled things together. And so when they call Paul a, a seed picker, a babbler, it's, it's not a compliment. It's not, oh, you old seed picker. Right? It wasn't a good thing. They say, look, you're talking about crazy things. You don't make any sense. And Ether said, no. He's talking about foreign gods. Maybe, maybe he has a new god for us. Maybe we, should, maybe we should give him a listen. And it says, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So they bring Paul to the Areopagus. Now, just a bit of trivia for you. Areopagus means the hill of Ares or the the rock of Ares. And you may remember that Ares was the... Greek god of war. And the Roman god of war was the same god. They had a different name. You may remember what the Roman god of war's name was? Mars. Right? And so this, this place, Areopagus, the hill of Ares, in English it's often translated Mars Hill, right? Mars Hill. A, a lot of your older translations, maybe if you have a I think the King James translates it Mars Hill, right? That's the same place, Mars Hill and the Areopagus. Anyway, so the people there, they, they loved new ideas. They loved new teachings. They always wanted to hear the latest philosophies. And these people, they, they prided themselves on being very open-minded and very accepting and very inclusive. And so they bring Paul to, to Mars Hill, to the Areopagus. And by the way, the Areopagus or Mars Hill, it refers to the location, but it also refers to to the governing council that met at that location. And so they bring Paul to the Areopagus. And they say, Paul, tell us. Tell us this this new teaching. We want to hear all about it. And that was all the invitation old Paul needed, wasn't it? Well, guys, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this. I proclaim to you. So I want you to notice what Paul does here. Paul looks to find some common ground with these people. So many times, we as Christians, we as believers, we have this us and them mentality. And we make these very clear divisions. And we even do it among ourselves, don't we? Oh, they're, they're Lutherans. They're Baptists. Oh, they're Assembly of God. You know, and we, and we, we create these divisions. And, and we, we have a tendency to sort of exalt our position, don't we? And kind of everyone else is kind of somewhere down the slope from us. Because we have achieved. I remember this one time when we were in Belize, and um, this is maybe five years ago, and um, my son Elias, he had an MMA fight, and it was being held in this, in this conference center at this, at this big hotel, and so it was the day before the fight, and we're there, and we're, we're carrying up the mats, and we're setting up the cage, and moving chairs, and doing all this stuff, and across the hall, there was this business seminar for church leaders going on over there. And 
I knew with a lot of, a lot of the guys that were over there. A lot of them, they were good guys. There's some pastors that I did ministry with. But there were some other pastors there that I didn't know. And they didn't know me. Now, on this particular day, we're there, we're working, we're carrying a mat, setting up the cage, and, and I was wearing a tank top. And you might not know, but I'm kind of tatted up underneath my shirt. And, and we're there setting up the fight, and I've got a tank top, and I've got tattoos hanging out. And, and some of the church leaders there, they had no idea who I was. They didn't know that I was a pastor, and I could just feel them looking at me and just looking down on me and, and, and just judging me. Who is this guy? You know, he's got tattoos. He's involved in MMA. You know, and, and here's the thing. I could have just as easily been wearing a button-up shirt, sitting over there in the room with them, and been totally accepted. They would have been totally cool with me. But there was this very clear self-righteous attitude. There's us. We're the church. And then there's those guys over there. Do you know who never displayed that attitude? Jesus. Do you know who else didn't? Paul. We see that here. He, he, he's always reaching out, never dividing, always trying to unify. And listen, Paul was always true to the gospel. He was always true to his beliefs. But he always looked for common ground. To relate to other people. Becoming all things to all men, right? So he says to the men of Athens, he says, I notice that you're very religious. There's shrines everywhere I go. He says, in fact, I was walking along and I, and I saw this shrine to the unknown God. I see that you guys are, are covering all your bases just in case you missed one. Paul says, guess what? I'm here to tell you about that God. I'm here to tell you about the unknown God. I'm here to make known the unknown God. And I like that. We see how, how Paul here, he connects. He finds a common ground with these unbelievers to build off of. And when Paul begins to preach, he doesn't come against them. He's not opposing them. He comes alongside of them, teaching them, instructing them, correcting them, showing them the way of the gospel. And verse 24 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul says, This unknown God that you're worshiping, he is the one who made the world. And everything in it. Remember Paul in Colossians. He's writing to the church there in Colossae. And, and he says, in him. Or he says, all things were made in him. And for him. He says, God made everything. And it's all for him. He says, he's the ruler of the heaven and the earth. So Paul here, he finds this common ground. But he doesn't. Just accept everything they believe. He doesn't say, look, here's Jesus. Maybe, maybe you can find a little spot for Jesus. Maybe somewhere in between Aphrodite and Zeus, you can kind of shoehorn Jesus in. He finds common ground. He establishes a rapport with them. And then he corrects them where they're in error. He says, look, God doesn't live in man-made temples. He doesn't need human priests to serve him. He doesn't have needs in that way. And immediately, those of you who know the scripture have to ask the question, you know, what, is, what does Paul mean? Does Paul forget about the temple in Jerusalem? Right? In the Old Testament, the temple was in place, and the people would come there to meet with God. And the, the priests would minister on behalf of the people before God. But here's the thing. This is what Paul is saying. It wasn't the dwelling place of God and that they didn't build the temple for Yahweh so he wouldn't have to live in a homeless shelter. Right? He wasn't, it wasn't like that. The priests who ministered, they were there on behalf of the people going before God. But they weren't trying to 
provide for God's needs. Paul here says God has no needs. Right? He's the self-sufficient one. And, and that's his name. Remember there in Exodus. Remember Moses out there in the wilderness in Sinai. Sinai and remember he, he encounters that burning bush. And remember the Lord speaks to the burning bush and he says, Moses, I want you to go back into Egypt. And I want you to tell the Pharaoh to let my people go. And remember they have that whole conversation at the end. Moses says, what's your name? Who should I say sent me? And remember what the Lord replies? He says, Ayah, Asher, Ayah. I am that I am. He says, I am the self-existent one. I am the eternal, never-ending, never-beginning one. I am the self-sufficient one. He says, I need nothing. I exist in and of myself. And that's what Paul is saying here. And Paul goes on, he says, He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul says, it's this unknown God who is the giver of all life. It's he who meets every need. Paul's addressing these philosophers who spend all their time bouncing from one new idea to the next. And he says, look guys, you're, you're looking and looking and looking and looking, trying every new God, trying every new philosophy, trying every new religion. And you keep coming up empty. Paul says, look, it's him. It's in him. It's in the God of heaven that you'll finally find peace and joy and hope and satisfaction. There is no other name under heaven by which man might be saved. He goes on in verse 26. He says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He made from one man. In the Greek, the actual language, it says he made from one blood. From one blood, he created the nations. And you may remember that word, word in Koine, nations, is ethnos. And it doesn't speak of, of political entities. When it's talking about nations, it's not talking about Canada and the United States and Mexico and Guatemala. Right? It's talking about people groups. It's talking about ethnicities. And I love this verse. Paul says, look, we are all from one blood. We all have the same blood coursing through our veins. He says, all people, all ethnicities, we're one. Racism is a lie from the pit of hell. Racism is a tool that the enemy uses to artificially divide people. We, humanity, we're created in the image of God. And racism is a tool that's used to sow discourse and to sow hate. And that's the opposite of what the Lord is calling us to, isn't it? We're called to love and to unity. And racism is the, is the antithesis of those things. And, and anyone who embraces racism in any form is falling into the deception of Satan. The idea that, that white people are better than black people, or that Japanese people are better than Chinese people, or that the, the Tutsis are better than the Hutus, or, or whatever. That's, that's satanic. That's from the enemy. Now, it's well known that there is one master race, one perfect blend. And that's Mexican, Irish, Danish, Hawaiian. And it's a small group, I confess. Right? Coincidentally, my sister and I fall into that group. And as far as I know, that's it. We make up that group. But listen, racism is a lie from the very deepest pit of hell, devised in the heart of Satan himself, meant to bring division. 
Right? And it's a, it's a well-known military strategy, right? In order to conquer, what do you need to do? To divide. And listen, I'm not just trying to be progressive and, and modern in my thinking. You know, there, there's no races. I'm not just up here trying to, to virtue signal because of all the stuff going on in the world. This, is, this isn't just some political ideology or conjecture. This is, this is scientific fact, right? It used to be thought that there were different races, that there was a, a black race and there was, a, there was a, a white race and there was an Asian race and, you know, we're all these different races. But modern genetics has shown that that's, it's simply not true. It's, it's false. In the late 80s, research into in the mitochondrial DNA, and now, by the way, I'm the, uh, I'm the seed picker, right? I'm talking about things I don't really know about, but I've read, right? People who do know say that really there's only one race. And in fact, they, they, they discovered that, that most likely we all came from, from one mother, one blood. They teach that literally some thousands of years back, there was a... A, a genetic bottleneck where the population drastically dwindled to, to one family or perhaps one, one couple even. And, and there was an article about that in Time Magazine and they, and they called this the, uh, the mitochondrial Eve. Right? She's the one who, who, who we all descend from. Gosh. Seems like I read about something like that in the Bible. Back, back in Genesis, something about there was eight people on the ark. Or I mean, I'm going to have to go back and look. But modern science now confirms what the Bible has always taught. That we are the descendants of one set of parents. Adam and Eve. One blood, one race, one people. Now, there are two different families in the human race. There are the people of God, and there are the people of the world. But Paul says here in verse 26, it's God who created the nations. He created the people groups. He says it's he who, decide, who decides who's going to rise and who's going to fall. He determines their borders. He says ultimately it's one people. And he goes on in verse 27. He says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Paul says God's desire is for people to seek him and to find him. I've shared this before. In Bible college, we used to play hide and seek. And we had about a city block that was out in the woods. And we would set up boundaries, and it was out at nighttime, and we'd set time limits. And we were hardcore. We'd dress in all black, and we'd have sticks in our, you know, and, and we'd scout out in the afternoon before, find good hiding places. And, and it, it was serious business for us. We, we, we didn't want to be found. Now, I often play hide-and-seek with Hannah. She's 15 months old. That's a very different game. Right? I'll hide behind the corner with my head peeking out. Or I'm behind the curtain with an arm and a leg sticking out. Right? I want her to find me. I want to be found by my child. Right? I love it when she finds me and I see her face light up and she smiles and, and she, she giggles with joy. That's how it is with our Heavenly Father. We're supposed to look for him. But you know what? He isn't hiding very well, is he? He wants to be found by us. He's not far from any of us. It says in Jeremiah 29, 13, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. He's saying, look, if you look for God, with a sincere heart, you're going to find him. Because he's close by and he wants to be found by us. 
verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. Paul says, look, all that we are is from God. Your heart beating this morning is a gift from God. The fact that you were able to walk into church this morning is a gift from God. The fact that you're sitting here this morning drawing breath, that's a gift from God. Even, even when life is hard, even when things are difficult, we ought to be grateful for what we do have, that we're alive, that we're drawing breath. It's the, it's the common grace of God that any of us are here at all. And then Paul goes on and he says something interesting. He says, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. Again, something I want to point out here. Paul was familiar with popular culture. And he understood his audience. Right? Paul, of course, he was a solid Bible-believing Christian, right? And he was a Bible-writing Christian. <laughs> Wrote half the New Testament. He knew what he was talking about. But he also knew and understood his culture and his audience. You know, Paul wasn't some weird recluse. He wasn't a hermit living out in the woods wearing homemade pants. Right? He understood that, that he needed to engage in the culture around him. And, and we need to be like that. We need to engage the culture around us. And that doesn't mean that we engage in everything. Right? It doesn't mean that we partake in everything that, that the culture offers us. But we need to understand our culture. And for believers, there's a, there's a tension here, isn't there? Right? Trying to find that balance. Remember, Jesus said to be in the world, but not of the world. Trying to find that balance there. Trying to understand the culture, being able to connect with the culture, but not fully partaking of the culture. Not partaking in the sins of the world. And so Paul he quotes a popular poet of the day here. And a line from that poem says that we are all offspring of God. And Paul says, look, that's true. Just not in the way that you think it is. He says, look, we are offspring of God. We are created in the image of God. We are image bearers of the divine. And if we are image bearers of God, why do you think that God is an idol made of gold or silver or wood? Look what it says in Isaiah chapter 44, starting in verse 13. It says, the carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns over a fire. Over the half he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. You see the story there, right? 
This guy, he goes and he chops down a tree. Cuts it up, takes part of it, puts it in his fireplace. He has a barbecue, cooks some ribs up, makes some s'mores. He stays warm. Ah, I have seen the fire. The other part takes it and shapes it into a little idol, a little god. And he prays to it and he worships it. And he says, deliver me, my God. We read that and we say, that's crazy. That doesn't make sense, does it? We are created in his image. It's crazy that instead of worshiping the creator, so often we find ourselves worshiping created things. You know, we might not have pagan shrines like they did then, but we're just as prone to idolatry, aren't we? Just as prone to get sucked into this thing or that thing and beginning to give all of our love and devotion and attention to all these other things rather than to living God. We get sucked into to devoting ourselves to careers or education or relationships or, or all these different things. And really, that's no different. That can just as easily be idolatry. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul says, look, God has been merciful in times past. People didn't know who God was, and God overlooked their ignorance. He didn't bring immediate judgment. But Paul says, guess what? The truth has arrived now. The message has come. The word has, has been proclaimed. And Paul says, now you and I are all accountable for what we know. Sorry if I just ruined it for you, by the way. You're accountable now. He says, there's a day coming when every single human being will stand before the living God and give an account of their lives. Jesus is going to be the judge. And we have to give an account of our lives to him. And Paul says, repent of your sins. And repent, of course, it means to change your mind. right? It means to change direction. To stop going the direction that you're going in and go the other direction. Paul says, repent. Confess your sins before God. Ask him to forgive you. Paul says, because in him, is the power to change lives. And Paul, he's explaining this to the crowd. He's, he's talking them through the shed blood of Jesus. He's talking them through his death and his burial and his resurrection. He's talking about how we can receive forgiveness for our sins, how we can experience this new life filled with peace and joy and hope. Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul, he shares the gospel. He speaks of how, how Jesus rose from the dead. And many in the crowd, they began to heckle him. They began to laugh at him. They mocked him. And, and, they, and they rejected this hope found in Jesus. And that's exactly how it is today. There are many people who, who hold Jesus in very high esteem. Sure, Jesus was a prophet. Jesus was a, a great teacher. He was a rabbi. He was a, a great moral leader. But you bring in the supernatural, that Jesus was God in the flesh, that Jesus died and was buried and rose again on the third day. And everything changes there. There's nothing but, but mockery and derision. But others said, we will hear you again about this. Not everybody rejected Paul. Some people wanted to hear more. 
This is how it is when you share the gospel. Some people will reject the gospel outright. Some people will immediately repent and believe. And some people, you share the gospel, you're planting a seed. But it takes a little while for that seed to, to germinate and to sprout, right? Yesterday, I, um, I went and got a couple yards of, of topsoil, and I spread them across my yard. And I got a bag of grass seed, and I, you know, I sprinkled it all through there, and I covered it up. And this morning, when I walked out and opened the door, you know what I didn't see? I didn't see any grass. I didn't see a nice, thick, lush lawn out there. Why? I planted the seed. Because it takes time. It, this seed has to sprout and grow and develop. And that's how it is sometimes with the gospel message. Sometimes you, you share the gospel and people immediately come to Christ. Sometimes your job is just to, to plant seeds. And the Lord works in that person's heart and brings about the eventual harvest. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a, man, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. You and I, we are not responsible to save anyone. We are not responsible to change anyone. And in fact, we can't. We can't save anyone. Our calling <coughs> is to introduce people to the one who can save. Our calling is to introduce people to the one who can change lives. And we need a couple of things in order to do that. First, we have to have our hearts stirred. We see that Paul's heart here, it was broken for the lost. Paul's heart was, was burdened for the unsaved. We need the Lord to stir our hearts up. We need the Lord to give us a passion for the lost. We need to be out sharing the gospel with those who don't know it. Second, Paul knew the culture. Paul met people where they were. And more importantly, he knew the one that he was introducing them to. He knew God and he knew his word. Paul was convinced of the power and the grace, and the love of his God. And his heart burned to share that with the people around him. Lord, give us that heart. Give us a heart that burns with passion for people who don't know you. This morning, we're going to share in communion together. And as we do this, if you don't have your little packet there in the back there, As we share in communion together, we're celebrating the death and the burial and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are commemorating what Jesus did on our behalf there on the cross at Calvary. And communion is only for the church. It's only for believers. And I don't mean that it's only for those who attend Calvary Chapel Edmonds, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about communion is only for the body of Christ. And so if you're visiting and you're a believer, you are welcome to join us this morning. As we, as we take the, uh, I hesitate to call it bread. We, we take the wafer. As we, as we take the bread and break it and eat it, we remember the body of Christ that was broken on our behalf. We remember the body of our Lord 
that was crushed and was bruised, that was broken and beaten, as he took our sin upon himself. Let's eat together. And as we drink the, the juice, the wine, we remember the blood of Christ that was shed on our behalf. We remember his blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. We remember in Hebrews it says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so we drink together and remember the blood that he shed on our behalf. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your goodness, Lord. We thank you that you made a provision for us, for broken, lost sinners, Lord. And now that we've been adopted into the family of God, Lord, we pray that you would give us a, a burden for the lost, that our hearts would burn with passion to see, see unbelievers become believers, Lord. That you would fill our hearts and our lips with, with the gospel, Lord. Give us opportunities to proclaim your truth. We pray that in your name.